Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast, where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve. Here's your host, Neil Thompson. Welcome to another edition of Teach the Geek Interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I'm the founder of Teach the Geek. I work with technical professionals so they can present more effectively, especially in front of non-technical audiences. And you can learn more about that at teachthegeek.com. Again, that is teachthegeek.com. And always, if you're watching this on the YouTube channel, remember to like and subscribe. Every little bit helps. And if you're listening to this on the podcast, consider becoming a, a follower of the podcast. Well, today, my guest is Dr. Carla Cyan. After years of schooling, she now works as a systems engineering associate director. What does that mean? I have no clue. So I'm certainly going to ask her <laughs> what, what exactly that means. And whenever I have a guest who has a PhD and works in industry, I'm always interested to find out about getting the PhD and how it's impacted her working life thus far. So and, and since this, this podcast is about public speaking, I'm certainly going to ask her those questions as well. So welcome to Teach the Geek Interviews, Dr. Cyan. Thank you, Neil. It's a pleasure. So going back to, I guess, when you even got into engineering in the first place, what made you decide to get into engineering? So in the, in the first place, from the very beginning, I really didn't think that I had any other options. Uh, some people like to read books and others like to go into adventures. In my mindset, I spent most of my life just learning about uh, things. Um, it's something that my parents encouraged me about. I love tinkering. So from day one, I knew I wanted to be a girl engineer. There was just no other option for me. And uh, and from that, um, I started into various journeys. I also love sports, by the way. So I was very avid into sports, right? So it wasn't the typical stereotype. Uh, I was really good in volleyball and swimming. But I was just, I just found a math and science not difficult at all. I just found that that... Um, uh, while other folks struggle, um, my hardest uh, topic was actually history, believe it or not, to grasp, right? So that's just something quite unique about myself. Oh, yeah. I wasn't that great at history, too. I just remember that in, in high school, taking a history class. I used to fall asleep during, I used to fall asleep when they used to show videos, of like like the Second World War and First World War, those type of those type of videos. I'd fall asleep, and then they'd, they'd have quizzes about the about these about these videos, and I thought, well... Well, that, that that's not that's a grade I'm not going to get so so that I'm not going to do so well in. <laughs> but yeah, I, I I totally get that. But but then you didn't stop just with an undergraduate degree. You went on and got graduate degrees as well. So what made you decide to go all the way and get your PhD? Yeah. So I didn't plan to go to school for so many degrees. I feel like I have been in school my my whole life. Um, I'm you know from from the passion that I have for learning. Uh, my first uh, employer, uh, my, the government contractor, I was exposed to a lot of technologies. And the company back then was sponsoring two master's programs. The first one was uh, an MBA, which is a business of master's of business. And the second one was a, uh, a unique new program that they were calling a systems engineering master's program. And at least back then, it was a new program. Um, nobody really knew what it meant yet. What is a systems engineering program? And so I was asked to send my nomination. And the best part about it was that the company paid for it. So it was a no-brainer. And uh, I got accepted into the program. And then after a couple of years, I was looking for more depth into 
other engineering areas specifically because I was working with other PhDs that were senior experts that were moving the company forward and driving innovation across into all these other areas. And that specific community became mentors of mine and, and role models to the level that on the weekends, um, whatever research it was, it didn't matter the topic. It could be various technologies, but I find it very fulfilling to learn something new. Um, and so one of my mentors said, hey, rather than doing it on the weekend on your own time, why don't you try to obtain uh, graduate credits for it? And that was the, the beginning of the PhD program. And once I, you know, I decided to go into the electrical and computer engineering program, it was a lot harder than I anticipated. And of course, advisors don't tell you that, but I persisted through that. And that's, that's the important part of the story. Okay. So when it came to your PhD, is that something you did full time or did you do that while working still? No, I did it while working still. Yes. yes. Oh, wow. And, and that is actually a recommendation that I, that I tell everybody. Um, um, it's, it's very unheard of. It's very unheard of. Typically, you see yourself as, you know, going from your bachelor's to your master's trade and then from master's trade to PhD. And I just think that that is, um, that is going to be perhaps an option for a, a lot of folks. But for me, I feel that the advantage of being in industry, really knowing if you, if you really want to dedicate all this time and effort into something, right? Um, because at the end of the day, you have to be passionate about uh, the research that you're doing. You have to be, you have to find it purpose. You have to find it meaning. And so there was a lot of advantages um, about um, working in industry, having other PhDs in industry. So PhDs don't only work in academia. There is a certain perceptions, but that is not true. A lot of PhDs actually work in the industry fields and they serve as mentors, researchers, um, and uh, that small, it's a very small community, um, but it's one of the, um, I guess it's the uh, best kept secret, I don't know, for lack of a better word. Oh, yeah, I, I, I truly do believe that it is a secret. I don't know if best kept is the right word, but <laughs> it, it certainly is a secret because I know for a fact that there's many people who start off in these PhD programs and, and then typically didn't do it like you, they do it full time. And they're thinking that at the end of it, there's a tenure track position, a professor position waiting for them. But what they don't know, unfortunately, is that there's way more people who want those jobs than there are people who actually qualified for, well, want those jobs than there are, than there are jobs available in, in, industry, in academia. And so now you get this PhD and you're, you're now faced with this position of what do you do with it? Are you going right. to, are you willing to wait around? For a tenure track position to come up, or are you going to look at alternatives? And well, I think a lot of people that have, have that rude awakening, unfortunately. Right, right. And you can always, and at least for you know, depending on on what you like, um, you can always teach. Right. Um, we have a lot of our of uh, folks that are teaching anytime after hours. So just like you went to school after hours, right? You could teach. You can, you know, go to university, local university, your local college, um, and you can find avenues for teaching anytime. Uh, you can even uh, teach after you retire. But the opportunity to work in industry, the opportunity to drive research, the opportunity to uh, submit innovations, um, I think that that, um, that is something that we don't hear much about. Um, and so I, I like to bring that up because um, when I was when I first looked into the program, I also, uh, Neil, found that, that it perhaps was not possible that, you know, I would be too busy, you know, I am working full time. But what I did was I didn't start thinking 
I am going to get a PhD. I started thinking, I am going to take a class. I am going to learn something from this class. And then next semester, I will take a next, another class. So it was very incremental. And then all of a sudden, you're done with your classes. Then you go into your research. Then you go into the major leagues, right? And so uh, I, I like to think in small steps. And, and, that's, and then you have a community of other PhDs that are uh, all but dissertated. That's the um, other other word, which means you have done everything except you're not dissertated. And that's probably the hardest part of the process because it can feel um, that uh, it can feel very um, difficult, a lot of stress during that process. Family, um, your um, perhaps difficulties with publishing, all these um, um, external factors, right? And um, and uh, and you have a PhD, but you still feel so unworthy of of uh, graduating or presenting. And so, um, what all but dissertated means is that you have to do more work, and there is no end date, right? The university is not going to say, "Hey, Neil, you're going to be done in December." That doesn't exist. It's all a process, and it takes time. And so, being passionate about your research, being passionate and very mindful about this is something that you really want, and taking your time. I think helped me so that I do not abandon and become another statistic that started but never finished. Okay. So now that you have your PhD, how has having a PhD benefited you? So one of the major benefits, I think, is, is uh, being a polyglot. I have no loyalty to one engineering degree. So I can go to work today and I can talk to an electrical engineer swap my language, talk to a computer engineer, swap, talk to an industrial engineer, swap. So being able to be a polyglot helps because every engineering uh, discipline has a different domain knowledge. And so um, that is very, very powerful, not just to be able to grow in the company, but just to make your job easier. And in, in terms of collaboration, expanding your network, and he, being able to form a community of supporters that are going to be uh, helping you in, in, in any time because these projects are very complex and you need the support of your peers. All right. Well, I, I did mention in the intro that you work as a associate director in systems engineering. What exactly does that entail? Oh, so my it's it, my day to day is is very very different. Uh, it changes all the time, especially week to week. Actually, so I support uh, various research and development efforts, uh, business campaign efforts. Given a subset of our products, how can we aggregate them for future front end of the business? Then a third vector that I work throughout the week is advancing the practices of systems engineering or model based systems engineering or digital transformations. Uh, a fourth vector is perhaps supporting proposals for the business, any type of uh, moving the needle. And then associate directors were also responsible for mentoring our early career engineers. So this mentoring could be office hours that we have to support, training that we have to provide to, to our employees. And that is probably the most important route, right? Uh, for myself, we have to be available to support that. All right. You know, being a, a director, I suspect that that requires you to be a leader of some kind. If mm -hmm. you were to offer one tip in, mm -hmm. I guess, one rule maybe in, mm -hmm. in being the best leader you could be, what would it be? Number one, in order to lead people, you need to learn to communicate. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
And that is that is key, right? Uh, especially nonverbal languages. I know that uh, in this channel, there is we talk about communication, but um, I saw the benefits of nonverbal languages, especially uh, because English is my second language. And so I found it very useful. And even to this day, it helps me eye contacts, eyebrows, and gestures that allow me to pay attention to any type of inconsistency. Am I am I making a difference? Is my is my point heard, or am I am I losing the other person? Okay, yeah. Well, I guess doing virtual meetings might have been difficult for you, especially when people don't turn don't turn their cameras on. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> no, no eyebrows to look at there. Just no a bunch eyebrows, of black screens. <laughs> no, no, no chin, no shoulders. <laughs> wow, wow, you're you're real detailed. <laughs> I think my shoulder's looking all right right now. I don't know. <laughs> like as you as you so noted that this this whole podcast, this YouTube channel is about public speaking and with people with technical backgrounds. And mm -hmm. it, it stemmed from my own struggles having to give presentations in front of others. But I, I soon, re well, I eventually realized the importance of getting better at, at giving presentations or just public speaking in general. At what point did, was it, I guess, when did you realize that public speaking or, or giving presentations was something that would be a benefit to you? Uh, from day one, um, the in in this in this uh, especially in industry right what differentiates uh, good engineers from great engineers is the ability to make a very difficult topic make it look simple right um and and we struggle with that a lot we have uh, really complex uh, intricacies and as engineers we we're very proud of of everything that we learn right and so at a very young age um i I realized that uh, I have two sets of audience primarily. Uh, I have to um, ask myself, you know, am I making a technical decision, right? Or am I just briefing my executive leaders? And so I noticed that my executive leaders love the bottom line up front. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but it's the bluff, right? And it's, it's one slide that just says, here is, here is the end goal up front, the results and the, and the concurs. And it's like a big summary, right? And so I, I realized that early up front that they don't necessarily, it's not that they don't care about all of the details, but they have to make decisions. And so to me, that was a number one key takeaway that I learned in industry because, um, you know, key leadership, especially key executives, they're listening to hundreds of presentations. I'm not the only person briefing them. Oh, 100%. You know, when you were talking to Dr. Sain, it brought me back to actually what catapulted, I guess, what was the catalyst for teach the geek. It was me being an engineer, having to give presentations in front of senior management on a monthly basis. And those meetings, we're talking about a bunch of people having to give presentations back to back. It was a whole day affair. So we're talking the CTO, CEO, CIO, CMO, EIEIO, all, all the seats, <laughs> all the seats. Everybody was in this room and they had to get, and they had to sit through a bunch of presentations just back to back. Maybe they got a couple of breaks, a break for lunch, but it was a lot of presentations that they had to sit through. And, and I think you're right when it comes to presentations in that in that sense and in that format, you got to get to the point because as you said, they they are these are decision makers. They there's a lot that they have to do and they and there's a lot of decisions that they have to make. So maybe the all these details that you're all geeked up about for them, not so much. <laughs> right, right. And you're the center of attention because right, you're right in the middle, right? 
So they're all looking at you. <laughs> yep, that's right. So when it comes to public speaking or giving presentations, is that something you've always been good at? And if not, what did you do to get better at it? Oh, definitely. It's not something that I always been good at. Um, I, I am still becoming better at it. I practice, practice and practice. Uh, what I do is, and what I actually started doing at the very beginning was number one, once I have my slide deck, right. Um, I write everything down and I, I know it's not for everybody, right. Most folks will, it's, it's my method. Most folks will not want to write, okay, I'm going to say this in this order, but I type, I type everything that I'm going to say. And then I discovered in that process that I had additional slides and I will remove them, right? So I had to declutter my deck, my deck. And then number two is I actually recorded myself. And that was a, a terrible experience because if you record yourself and you see how you're coming across, it is quite, um, you know, the first time that you're seeing, you can get quite uncomfortable. And I will practice and practice and practice until I felt that I had done a really good job, or at least I had improved from the very first time. And so that is actually what helped me to, um, when I had to do um, many presentations in a short amount of time, and I wanted to really take it up a notch and continue to do so quickly and easily. So when you write everything down, when it comes to the actual presentation, are you actually trying to memorize everything, all, all the words that you wrote? No, what I'm trying to do is not even memorize the words. What I'm trying to do is ensure that when it's very easy to put together a PowerPoint, right? I mean, that's that's typically what industry makes us do. Um, however, in academia, right, you don't you don't see PowerPoints. You see dissertations, you see chapters. And the reason for chapters is to elicit your mindset to think a little bit deeper, right? Because in, in, there is a lot of um, a wisdom into understanding. You think you know what you said because you put a picture in the PowerPoint, but do you really understand it? And I noticed that once I started to type my thoughts in, um, in the PowerPoint, you know, then I realized, ooh, wait a second. Hmm, that wisdom is not needed right now. And I would completely take it away from the slide deck. So um, there are points, in fact, where I wish that we, we will get rid of PowerPoint. I think that we have uh, too many meetings in which we have more PowerPoint. And I and I think that sometimes written reports could get, um, maybe the written report could just be one paragraph. It doesn't have to be even, even a complete page. But uh, I think that um, com uh, communicating in writing sometimes elicits a little bit more thought and forces you to be more uncomfortable and to really dig deep into what is it that you're trying to say and get more value out of your presentation. You know, when it comes to PowerPoints, I find that so many of us, myself included, at least initially, we put up a lot of text on those PowerPoints. So what people end up doing is they read. And it's really difficult to read and listen at the same time. So people are making that decision whether they're <laughs> actually going to listen to the presenter or they're going to read their <laughs> slides. And then not only... What does, does, is that, does that happen is the presenter then reads their slides too. So Perfect. when the presenter is reading, it's difficult to then look at the audience. So it's difficult and then it's difficult to engage people when you're not looking at them. So now you're thinking the people in the audience think, well, this person's not looking at me. I'm already looking at the screen. I'm not, right. I'm, I'm, not I'm not sure how much longer I'm going to look at this screen. I'm not sure how much longer I'm going to listen to this presentation too. 
I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna look off right. into space and look on my phone. What am I gonna have for lunch today? That's what I'm gonna think about. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, I certainly take your point about hey, if, if if you were just gonna read off the slides, you might as well have just sent me the slides and I could have read them later. Why am I sitting here listening to you read? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and the body language too. Um, that's one thing that I that I learned that um when when folks are talking, they, they shouldn't talk to the slides, right? They should talk to the audience. And so uh, you know, um I I try to, you know, to pay attention to that when we're presenting. And, and as you notice, Neil, you know, people do that because they're enamored with their work. Hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. And you know, the, the point you made about writing down your writing down what you what what you're gonna what, what's going to come to, on each of those slides, mm -hmm. but not necessarily looking to memorize them, but just yeah. looking to kind of get your thoughts together and see what makes sense to keep and what makes sense to get rid of. Mm -hmm. I think that's, a, I think that's pretty smart because what that does is eliminates all the fluff that maybe you would have said in, in, in the presentation, but did the people in the audience really need to know all those things? And that's, it just also goes back to knowing who is in the audience and kind of taking that kind of inventory and, and figuring out, what kind of information are these people looking for and making sure you present that? And then if anything else is extra, kind of leave that out. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's important. Um, in fact, uh, when folks ask me to, uh, to, to speak, either I think about well, who's the audience, who am I speaking to, am I teaching you a subject? Um, are you, and if I'm teaching you a subject, are you a professional? Are you a college student, right? Um, or am I uh, perhaps just doing a status report, right? Are you an, or are you an executive, or are you an engineer? Are you trying to learn something, right? Because our engineers, they love to seek their teeth into things, right? So I will, I will honor that and I will give them more detail than they need because they will appreciate that. Yeah, 100%. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to the presentations that you give, do you ever get nervous before them? And if so, how do you deal with your nerves? Oh, absolutely. I, I get nervous. Um, the way that I cope about it, it depends. Um, first thing that I assess is the, the nature of the presentation. Um, even with the nervousness or fear, I feel that if, if one is truly passionate about the subject you're about to speak, it's a little bit easier to center around your passion and forget that you're afraid, right? You're nervous. But if you're not too passionate about the subject, the topic um, is, you know, it's, it's easier to break the ice, perhaps by asking open-ended questions and having the audience involved in the conversations, right? So to me, it's all about centering. Centering, you have an option, you can center on the fear or centering on what we're passionate about. Obviously, this is not going to work with everyone in the audience, especially if it's your management. It is it is odd if we're asking open questions to senior management, um, but perhaps doing introductions, setting the stage appropriately can help uh, folks ease into a presentation. So overall, it's uh, it's crucial on how we start. The fear is always going to be there, and it's how you break the first two minutes that helps with that. You know, the, the idea of asking open-ended questions to the management kind of makes me chuckle a bit, because I'm thinking, maybe they're thinking in their mind, what the hell are you asking me questions for? <laughs> Uh, we're here to get questions, answers from you. Here's what <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yes. It, it does not work with every audience. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're supposed to be the expert, Debbie. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, but if but if you're the expert, I hope that you're truly passionate about the subject, right? I would hope. Yes. Yeah, one hundred percent, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, 
for the people who are listening and and watching this conversation and and they're convinced i want to get better at giving presentations i want to get better at public speaking what's the number one tip you could offer them practice 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 and do it often um i'm, I'm making this up right but i see these uh perhaps 50, perhaps 60%, perhaps even 70 is just you um, making the leap, right? Um, then 20% perhaps is teaching, uh, speaking to a different set of audiences. Now, you know, 70%, you're talking to the people, you're presenting to people that you're comfortable with. 20% is you're presenting to people that you're not very comfortable with, right? So you're different set of audiences. And then 10% is how you're doing the presentations, perhaps learning, perhaps um, taking courses, perhaps um, anything that teaches you how. And um, and so I think that this breaking it down into a fraction and making sure that you are, you know, being very um, strategic. And like I said, I'm just making up this number, right? But I think that if you practice and you're making the leap, you're, you have different audiences and then you are, learning how to improve it's it's a good step yeah practice is definitely important i have a friend who used to make fun of me i'm not sure if he makes fun of me anymore if he does it he does it behind my back he doesn't do it to my face anymore but he used to make fun of the fact that i used to practice well i, I do practice my presentations before i give them and he does a lot more i guess off the cuff type of presentations but i think it the the quality definitely shows because when you practice you can figure out what what do you need to say first second and third because if right. you don't practice, it just comes out as it comes out. And especially if you're talking to a, a group that doesn't know as much of the topic as you do, it may not come out in the best way or the most, you know, most effective way. And and now you're, you're going to get questions afterwards that perhaps you thought you would answer during the presentation. God knows that was my issue when I had to give presentations <laughs> at first. I'd be thinking to myself, I, I answered that like 10 minutes ago. Why is he asking me this question now? But the, <laughs> the reason was I didn't put it in a way this person could understand. And and that, that likely was due to my lack of preparation. So I, I definitely agree with the idea of practicing. You know, Dr. Dr. Cyan, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest. How can people get in touch with you? LinkedIn. You can, get, you can find me at Dr. Carla Cyan in LinkedIn. And it's right. a pleasure, Neil, as well. Thank you for the opportunity. You got it. Well, everyone, that marks the end of another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I'm the founder of Teach the Geek. I work with technical professionals so they can present more effectively, especially in front of non-technical audiences. And you can learn more about that at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Until next time, take care and stay safe. Thanks, Dr. Sayan. Thank you. Well, everyone, that marks another episode in the can. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like these episodes and want to support Teach the Geek, please subscribe, share, and like on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Or on all of them. Also, if you prefer to watch the episodes, head on over to the YouTube channel at youtube.teachthegeek.com. Until next time.